Rainbowphilia. Hello, fellow Anglophiles, and welcome to Anglophilia. I'm Stephanie Callis. I'm Kaylee McMahon. Today's subject, The Office. The Office. The Office is a BAFTA, Golden Globe, and Peabody Award-winning comedy created, written, and directed by Ricky Gervais and Stephen Merchant. It actually began as a short film Stephen Merchant had to make as part of a training program at the BBC. He was working as Ricky Gervais' assistant at the time, and he enlisted Ricky to perform as a character he sometimes did called C.D. Boss. Then the BBC commissioned a pilot, and the rest is history. So The Office ran for two seasons on BBC Two from 2001 to 2002, and was capped off with a perfect two-part Christmas special in 2003. Shot in mockumentary style, it chronicles the daily goings-on at the Slough branch of the fictional paper merchant Warnham Hogg, which are by turns monotonous, hilarious, cringeworthy, and downright painful. Ricky Gervais starred as David Brent, the regional manager, and was joined by a stellar cast of then-unknowns, including Martin Freeman as sales rep Tim Canterbury, Mackenzie Crook as Gareth Keenan, the team leader and assisted to the regional manager, and Lucy Davis as receptionist Don Tinsley. Its naturalistic style and signature cringe-inducing humor make it stand out in the television landscape, and it influenced so much of what came after. Like, to me, this show is really era-defining. I feel like everything can kind of be labeled as pre-office or post-office. <laughs> post-office. <laughs> Didn't mean that. But, uh, <laughs> but it's just, it's so groundbreaking. Um, the success of the show, as well as the universality of the subject matter, spawned an international franchise with adaptations made all around the globe. There were French, French-Canadian, German, Swedish, Finnish, Israeli, Czech, and Chile. Versions. What? Oh yes, I've seen pilots of most of these, Stephanie. We'll talk about them later. And of course, the dominant one, the American version, which is by far the longest running and most successful incarnation. However, none of these come close to capturing the awkward, subtle magic of the original. I'm just going to say at the outset to anyone who is listening and hasn't seen The Office, really should, not just because it's great and it will enrich your lives, but because as with all of our episodes, this is going to contain spoilers, and I think this is one of the few shows that we've ever covered where that actually matters. Mm, so yeah. I'm going to urge you to pause, go to your streaming service of choice, and uh, we'll see you back here in about eight hours. Okay, welcome back. Wasn't that fucking great? Now let's talk about it. <laughs> Let's be a little bit more gentle with the people who actually just did that. I'm sure they're feeling a lot of different emotions. We should be okay, gentle. Okay, pause again, feel your feelings, then come back. <laughs> good good job processing, everyone. I'm so proud of you. Now let's talk. You know, I liked that you made sure to kind of reference how it's so era-defining, even if you haven't watched it. Something about the way that this is written and directed and performed is you have the very quote-unquote like true-to-life sounding dialogue. Even mm. the sort of longer speeches, you can tell they're not overwritten at all. They don't need to be performed. They aren't these, you know, mm. rising and falling emotions. It's just very, you know, straight talk, true-to-life, the way that people speak. People speak over each other. People mm. say subtle things under their breath that you don't catch until a repeat viewing. And have you heard the term mumblecore? Yes. Okay, so when you're watching, uh, in my experience, typically American mumblecore movie or TV show that, you know, you hear later was mostly improvised and you're like, yeah, I could tell you were making shit up. There is a difference <laughs> between improvisation and making shit up. Right. It's funny, you, you can watch a mumblecore thing and you're like, you guys are saying too much. You guys are still doing too much. All of your effort to be true to life is coming off as very assholeish and overdone. And that is mm -hmm. not 
not happening in the office. The office is still a well-oiled machine. Absolutely. Well, that's because it wasn't improvised. It was all very tightly scripted. And I love that. It's got to be a well-oiled machine. You you mm-hmm. can't just all take the day off and hope that you'll arrive at something incredible. Yeah. No, I mean, it's it's so fascinating because I think that this is one of the few... I mean, I, I love the genre of mockumentary, and my first exposure to them was American movies, like the Christopher Guest movies. But most of the mockumentaries before this are still... Like, you wouldn't ever see them and mistake them for a real documentary. It's no. a device so that you can have people talking to the camera and explaining what's going on, and it's a fun little behind-the-scenes thing. But the acting isn't naturalistic. It's all very hammy and over-the-top, and the situations are not necessarily going to be believable. And this is a show that I remember when I first saw it when it was airing on BBC America a family friend of mine who's otherwise very smart said that she saw part of an episode and you know thought that it was real she said I just couldn't believe what these people were getting away with in the <laughs> office and like you could never you know just just to mention the American one like I'm not gonna dump on it too much but you would never see an episode of the American office and think oh wow that's real you know no. it's they're obviously acting It's just a different thing. Mm -hmm. This is just one of my all-time favorite shows. I know that a lot of Americans can't really handle it. They find the style of cringe humor just too painful for them. But honestly, to me, this is my comfort food. It's one of like two or three series that I return to again and again when I'm feeling sad. So in other words, I've watched this dozens of times, like way more times than I can Mm -hmm. possibly count. My high school binders were decorated with quotes from the series, and my teenage diary makes mention of the show multiple times. I will come back to that later. It just means so much to me. And Stephanie, you referred on this podcast about how Father Ted and Peep Show are a part of you. This is totally that for me. Like, The Office, I think The Office and The League of Gentlemen are the two halves of my brain that best define the weird creature that I have grown into since Aww. consuming those things. I mean, I remember when I first watched it on BBC America in 2003, it was like you with Father Ted. I never missed an episode. I rarely missed a rerun. And I thought that it was so funny. But now having spent the last eight years of my life working in offices, my perception of the show has completely changed, but then come around again. Like it's, it's just so, it's so good. It's such well-observed human behavior. Oh yeah. And I think that that might be a lot of what freaks viewers out Mm -hmm. when you're even just watching the first couple seconds and you see Ricky Gervais as David Brent like my very first note and I've seen this before but my first note is oh my god Mm -hmm. David's desperation from the very first minute is upsettingly palpable oh man and I think that people see that and they think of themselves or they think of people they know and it's it's awful because sometimes it really (laughs) is not funny I mean it's meant to be funny and like sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't but He's just the most lonely person. Oh, yeah. And he is so horribly insecure. He always says and does the wrong thing. His timing is wrong. He's so afraid. And um, yeah, a lot of of that is like not funny. (laughs) What'd you say? I said he's all of us. (laughs) He's all of us. And like, that's, that's not funny. We have to admit, like, that can be very, very much not funny. It's both. <laughs> it's both, but yeah. I can see in your eyes, as I was saying, admit it, it's not funny. I can see your eyes twinkling. You're like, oh, yes, it is. <laughs> it is. No, it, it's fantastic. both. <laughs> this, this show dances so beautifully on the line between pain and pleasure. I mean, it's, it's a comedy, but it's also kind of a tragedy in a lot of ways. Yes. I mean, it has such an, it has such a unique blend of the 
sadness and the pain and the monotony of not just, you know, this individual man, but each individual person's pain. You can see so much just in their subtle little performances or like a tiny little confessional to a camera that just reveals a little facet of their personality. Like it's just, you know, the, the lives of quiet desperation. It's just brilliant and yet then they'll just undercut it a little bit with a really funny like punchline is maybe not quite the right word but you know uh, something that is said you know believably in character that that person would say Mm -hmm. that then makes you laugh at them and you know by extension at yourself and at all of humanity yeah (laughs) now i i had seen snippets here and there on bbc america but i never sat down and watched this until college wow i sent away for the office dvds on netflix because it was back in the day and Mm -hmm. i probably watched it all in two two and a half days and I really connected with it in a huge way but I had never really worked in an office for an extended period of time so now you know having had shitty office jobs it was very interesting to go back and watch again and still feel similar feelings I I know I must have felt when I was 21 but to also have the new perspective of oh I can see the young 30-something-year-old Tim and Dawn characters justifying to themselves why they're still working these terrible jobs that they hate. And that is very, very (laughs) cringy. Oh, yeah. No, this is a show I think I mentioned at the tail end of our last week's episode that this watching this show while I am at my job in my office is like my version of emotional cutting. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I I mentioned that I saw this when I was, you know, 17. And I thought it was I just thought it was just laugh out loud hysterical. And up until probably this week, I would say, oh, poor little naive teenage me thought that this was a comedy when actually it's an existential tragedy but then I feel like this pastime watching it over this last week I was returned Mm -hmm. to that sort of former state of innocence it's like you know the whole innocence experience higher innocence cycle like I it made me so depressed to be like oh my god this is my life and I am Tim Canterbury and I'm never going to escape from this hellish you know Sisyphean existence of boredom and fluorescent lights and having to pretend to laugh at my boss's jokes and you know but now when I actually watched it, instead of just sort of listening to it and being half in, half out while doing a job that I don't care for, it just was transcendent once again. And it just lifted my spirit so much. I just, I can't imagine not loving this show. I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's just so funny. Okay, so what I would say, I know that I urged everybody to to watch the show. like Which just they now, went but and maybe, did. But maybe you're like driving and you don't want to do that. Or you didn't have time to, you know, squeeze in eight hours of binging. What I will say is that if you only want to watch one episode, if you're like, I really, I'm loyal to the American version and I know that I don't like the British one because I tried it once and it was icky and it made me uncomfortable with my feelings, just watch season one, episode four, Training. Because I think that that is... That is the funniest episode. It is, it is their Basil the Rat to me. It's liftable. You don't really need to know anything about it. It's just pure nonstop delight and hilarity from start to finish. I would totally play the entire 30 minutes as a clip, but I feel like that would infringe on copyright laws and also just be very long. But uh, watch it. I agree with everything that you said in that it's the funniest episode of the season. It's definitely the episode that for me is very much like episode four, season one of League of Gentlemen 
where you go, oh, okay, I was very much enjoying this, but now I'm in. Like, no questions asked. It's the point of no return. If you don't love it by that point, you never will. Exactly. Um, They they have this... it's not health and safety training. It's Is it something else? But wait, th- I realize that I'm the one who led us down this place, but we haven't really talked about any of the characters yet. Should we start with that and then go back to this episode? That was totally my bad. Probably because I was about to make a point about how it's not liftable because Tim asks Don out. Oh, okay. Well, so let's go back to <laughs> explaining who these people are for those of yes. you who still stubbornly refuse to watch the whole thing. All right. Let's start with David Brent. Yeah. He's... A boss who thinks of himself as a comedian. He's trying to be chummy with everybody. He wants to be liked. He wants so desperately to be popular. I feel like I haven't necessarily had a boss like this, but I've had teachers like this. We both have had teachers like this. Uh, Are you thinking of a history teacher? (laughs) I might be thinking of a history teacher. Dude, I I mean, the the way that David Brent, during the confessional, when he's talking just to the camera, and he's just throwing in these little things like, people say you're the best boss. And it's like, no, no one's ever said that to you. Mm-hmm. And he talks about his comedy and he says things like, my comedy. He talks about mm-hmm. where my comedy comes from. Yeah. And you're like, there is no your comedy. Yeah. You're this regional sales manager at this company. Like, what are, what are you talking about? Yeah. The, the delusions and no, the... He... Uh, it's his terrible. comedy is that he quotes other people's comedy and he's a big fan of comedy. You know, he, yes. he idolizes all of these greats. You know, he definitely does like the Germans in one episode. He does so many yeah. impressions and everything. And then there's another episode where he's talking about like, oh, you're always you're always nicking my catchphrases and says things like same shit, different day. That's one that I came up with. They're like, you know, yeah. just, just claiming these things and thinking that, you know, parroting something and referencing to something is the same thing as having come up with it and as being funny. And he's horribly threatened, horribly threatened by anybody that he encounters who is obviously senior to him. Like, I'm thinking about Jennifer Taylor Clark from Mm -hmm. the head office. You know, she comes in and the way that he's able to just be so dismissive of her when you know it's because he's terrified. He goes, yeah, she's the boss, but there should be no ego when you're trying to do something good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. As if he has zero ego and he truly believes that what he's doing is something good. He's Mm -hmm. he's just so threatened by everyone. Oh, absolutely. It's fantastic and it's horrible. No, it's so it's so great. And he's always seeking reassurance from his employees. Like at one point he he corners Dawn and says, like, what are some of your favorite bits that I do? You think I'm funny, right? Do you think I'm funnier than Neil? Or, or, you know, constantly asking people, how old do you think I look? And then they'll say, oh, 30. Yeah, yeah, 30s. I'm in in my 30s. And like, he's just constantly needing reassurance from absolutely everybody that he looks young and is attractive and funny and beloved. It's really sad. But like, we all have that bottomless pit of an ego, that monster inside of us that constantly needs more, more, more. And it's, of course, really uncomfortable to be face to face with it on screen. But I think that David Brent is one of those all-time great comedy characters in the vein of Basil Fawlty. I do not think that it is wrong to put him on that same shelf. Because also, my first note was just, fuck, Ricky is such a good actor. (laughs) Because... I remember, like, my first laugh out loud moment when I was watching this back as a teenager is just something that's completely visual. But, like, if you've seen the show, you'll know what I'm talking about. Just in the little confessionals where he says something self-aggrandizing about how he, whatever, he doesn't, he's upset about world hunger or he thinks about, like, these big issues. And then he'll just have this little smug, like, look off to the camera and then look back. It's like a slow blink. It's so funny. I love the slow blink. Oh my god, it's just the funniest fucking signature move. And every single emotion, this is true of all of the actors in this, they're all so wonderful, but David especially, because you just see so much of his range, like, everything 
registers on his face just with the tiniest little twitch of a muscle or a little look. It's so, and the way that he plays to the camera, the way that he's so self-conscious and always performing and always on. Oh, I just, I love David so much. And he is also terribly racist and sexist and thinks that he is not. Oh, absolutely. And yeah. gives it away in really hilarious, realistic ways. Like the show's yes. kind of ahead of its time in the way that it depicts Very much so. the way in which like liberal white people repeatedly put their foot in their mouths. Oh, yeah. Like David runs up to the South Asian man and says, you know, this guy does the best Ali G impression. And then he realizes, oh, it's not you. It's the other one. Mm-hmm. And the person of color says the other what? And he says the word packy. Mm-hmm. And then David goes, that's racist. Yeah. Because he's, you know, he is not to be perceived as racist. He is going to call the other person out, even though he absolutely did the racist thing. No, 100%. That's, there are so many fantastic microaggressions on display here in terms Mm -hmm. of race and sex and homophobia. No one's ever saying anything like, you know, God hates gay people or, you know, they're, they're not like advocating for slavery or anything, but it's, it's the people who state, oh, I'm not racist. I'm very against this thing that obviously everybody's against because it's societally acceptable to be against it but then they're just biased in these little unconscious ways i mean one of my favorite examples of that is in episode two where the central conflict is that there's been a doctored photo emailed around the office of david's head on a naked woman with two men uh wanking off on her yeah i mean the way that he's saying like it's not i'm not upset because it's me i'm upset because it's pornography and it degrades women and i'm you know he, he tries to paint himself as this feminist point is this yeah we've got access to the internet yeah but it is not censored is that a good or bad thing bad well it's not for us to say all i know is i can type in sex fetish yeah it takes a little while 2230 matches yeah just click on one random ah Dutch girls must be punished for having big boobs. Now, you do not punish someone, Dutch or otherwise, for having big boobs. If anything, they should be rewarded. They should be equal. Women are equal. I've always said that, so... This is when we hear about his friend Chris Finch, who's the only real bad guy of the series. Totally. Everybody else has these layers, and you see how they strive to be good, and then they fall and they fail. But he's the one person who's just completely one note and just a horrible dude. But he's quoting, he says, you know, Chris Finch, you know, smartest guy I know. He said, how can I hate women? Me mum's one. And it's that fucking Republican, like, I can't be sexist. I have daughters, but I'll let an alleged rapist onto the Supreme Court. What? Oh, oh God. This show is really smart and really ahead of its time. And I think that I was concerned going back because so many things from this era or even more recent eras don't age well in this whole politically correct culture of ours. And I know that these guys who made it, they're obviously cis straight white men and they uh, will you know push back against censorship or whatever but i think that it's always used really well here even though it's a lot of times the minority characters are sort of used just as a prop to highlight the white males bumbling true whatever totally true but at least he the guy who's making the mistakes is always the butt of the joke it's not it, it really isn't nasty no you're supposed to empathize with them 
who have to yeah. put up with this ridiculous behavior in the office. Yeah, yeah, that's that's noticeable. Yeah. So speaking of other relatable characters, the characters of Tim and Dawn, like I said, I had never been stuck in an office job wondering what the fuck am I doing when I watched the show at age 21. And now that that is a huge part of my past, it's like, oh God, everything they were saying was just, ah. Oh my God. Uh, <laughs> yes. <Yeah>. Oh, <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yeah. So, so let's start with Tim. Tim Canterbury. Tim is sort of the one that's supposed to be most sympathetic to us, I think. He's constantly looking at the camera for reassurance in that, like, did you just see the crazy thing that I just saw? Yes. He's really exasperated. His deskmate, Gareth, I mean, the, the two of them, they are always bickering like children. I definitely thought of Rick and Vivian. <laughs> like, oh, they're just, yeah. They're just these kids. And like... Yeah, in a way, I think Tim is to blame because Gareth can't help being the way he is, but Tim could rise above it and he could be the bigger man, but instead he just has to annoy Gareth because that's the one thing in his life that can give him any sort of entertainment yeah. or meaning. <laughs> what else is going to get him through the day other than fucking with the real weirdo Gareth, who I Absolutely. love, by the way. Yeah. Yes. But, but, you know, he's 30 years old, or he turns 30 years old in episode three. He lives mm-hmm. with his parents. He dropped yes! out of school, but he wanted to study psychology. He constantly talks about going back. This job was only supposed to be temporary, but then he stays on for years and years and years. And yeah, his thwarted dreams and sort of lack of ambition or at least lack of follow through with his ambition it's so relatable and so painful i actually find tim much more painful than david because i identify with him more than i identify with david in terms of his shortcomings okay yeah yeah i mean i definitely have like accidentally perpetrated microaggressions against people and be like oh god i can't believe i said that embarrassing thing to my black friend or my friend in a wheelchair oh i hope that they can forgive me but for the most part i'm like oh god i'm i'm in my 30s and i'm tim (laughs) it is funny though because he has a crush on dawn the receptionist and she's engaged to a horrible dude named lee Mm -hmm. and you get the sense from the word go that dawn is not necessarily head over heels in love with lee anymore but just sort of stuck with it the way she's sort of stuck with this job. And at one point, there is a merger in the company, and mm-hmm. Tim meets a new girl named Rachel, and they get along great. Mm-hmm. And then he delivers his monologue about, I live in Slough, I live with my parents, I dropped mm-hmm. out of college, I have this shitty job. And he says, form a queue, ladies. Ugh, and I thought, I there is a there is a queue forming. Dawn and 100%. Rachel are still, despite the fact that you are clearly kind of a loser, you are still a, you know, a male, and therefore yeah. people are going to fucking clamor for your attention. And that did piss me off, just because That's that was funny. true to life as well. That is that is very yeah. true. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's interesting. I, I didn't sympathize with Tim as much. When I was first watching this as a teenager... In season one, I didn't sympathize with Tim and Dawn or really care that much about their love story at all. My sympathies actually lay with Gareth. And we'll come back to that in a second. But but yeah, you mentioned Dawn. So let's talk about yeah. Dawn. Let's talk about Dawn. She's, you know, very sweet. She and Tim clearly have the strongest rapport of any two people in the office. They've got this very subtle, low-key kind of flirty energy. You know, I did watch the pilot of the American one just for comparison. And like, it's so, it's just so obvious from the second that you see them together. It's like, okay, this is a rom-com. You guys are going to get together. How long? Right. Tick, tick, tick. But with Tim and Don, there's this real sense of reservation and it's forbidden. And so every single thing just has such a charge to it. Every time that she touches his arm or every time that there's a look, it's just, it's charged with meaning 
And Mm -hmm. Stephen Merchant in like a documentary on the DVD extras said that it's like a sort of Victorian seething romance where like, you know, a a touch becomes a kiss and a kiss is like a shag. It's just everything, everything means so much. Very remains of the day. (laughs) (laughs) It is. It's, It's so hot. Not having sex is so much hotter than having sex in terms of watching it fictionally. You know what yeah. I mean. Thank yeah. you for clarifying that last part. <laughs> yeah. Um, but but yeah, so, and then Dawn, you know, she also thought that she was just going to be doing temporary part-time reception work and then got sort of stuck, fell into it as well. And it's not until episode eight that we find out that her one-time ambition that is maybe still there is to be a children's illustrator. Mm-hmm. And something that I actually really love about this show is maybe something that people who are fans of the American one don't like is that it's ve- I think it's very realistic the way that they tease out the details of these people's lives over a long period of time because in real life you know if you've ever worked in an office you might not necessarily know everything about everybody it might just be like there's the three or four people that you interact with every day and then there's the background characters I think that something that's so great about this show is that if you listen to the dialogue especially the little like boring bits that kind of break up the really funny set pieces it's all so generic but not yeah. in a way that makes you feel like, oh, that's dumb. Like, I did a business. <laughs> or, you know, mm-hmm. It's more like everybody here is a type. And yet they are so real in their portrayal of this very recognizable human behavior that they feel way more fleshed out than anything that's on the page. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I I thought that it was really interesting that we just, we only know Dawn as a receptionist who has a forbidden crush on Tim and is engaged to this horrible guy, Lee. And yeah, it's, David didn't know about her artistic ambitions. It's something that she has been suppressing for however many years. So why should we know at the outset? Yeah, no, that's true. Uh, So then Gareth is the other main, main character. Do you still think that Gareth is sexy? Because you were all about that skinny weirdo man. (laughs) It's embarrassing (laughs) to admit it now. It's... (laughs) (laughs) Well, okay, in in my defense. Okay, so, so Gareth is a definite weirdo. He's a very, very skinny, nerdy, kind of creepy, misogynistic dude um, but who does like get laid a surprising amount, which we'll yes, talk about. yes, he does. He's very into like you know order and the military. He's in the territorial army, which is not the same thing as the army, but he always refers to it as the army. He's, He's a like soldier, a survivalist. Yes. He's obsessed with the idea of like how to survive in the jungle with minimal resources. He's a very fascinating character. And um, when Ricky Gervais and Stephen Merchant were originally conceiving and writing the character, they imagined someone of a more you know intimidating physique and then when Mackenzie Crook came in to read it they were like like it took a little bit of of an adjustment on their part but it makes sense that someone built like that would need to sort of compensate that much (laughs) and also something that Ricky Gervais said in that same documentary was that he can get away with saying things that are really not okay that he couldn't get away with if he looked less fragile True. But he said, like, because he's, he looks like a baby bird. He's got, like, this this tiny, like, bird-like face. And, yeah, for some reason, Teenage Kaylee was very attracted to that. But, okay, so so <laughs> my first exposure, as I said, I watched this on BBC America when it was airing here in 2003. And I first became aware of it when I was watching BBC America, and I saw a commercial for it. And it was one of those talking heads, and it was just Gareth's face. And already I was like, ooh, a skinny guy with sunken eyes who looks like a malnourished Victorian waif. Hello there. Like, exactly my type Mm -hmm. and then it's just the thing where he says yes i've had office romances loads not here another place i worked at good looking ones as well 
And like, we didn't get the context that he is a creepy guy. It's just that little thing. And I was like, oh, he's someone who's like, not very good at love. And you know, I, I found him to be pitiable and also hot. <laughs> and so with that sort of like, baby bird mentality of like you're the first person that I saw therefore I think of you as like the maybe not the protagonist but the thing the truth is that Tim is very very mean to Gareth and at least in season one when I was a teenager I very much sided with Gareth in the Tim versus Gareth debate because as I said Gareth is he's the only one of the main characters who his life doesn't really change and he doesn't really change he's not you can sense that there's some vulnerability there and he does have layers to his character but like not that many he's pretty one-dimensional he's not dynamic he's not gonna like learn how to respect women or be more racially sensitive he's just he is who he is and it's in the episode where he's running his investigation or investigation to see who did the pornographic picture of david and mm -hmm. he invites tim and don in to be interrogated and he says, in this room, I have special, and Tim says, needs. And then he says, no, I am a special, and then he says, needs, child. And he's like, no, that's not even funny. And I was like, yeah, you know, the way that Tim picks on Gareth, it kind of is like picking on a special needs child. And I really didn't like that. And so I always, I always really sympathized with Gareth in season one. Season two, however... I became much more invested in Tim and Don, and I understood that maybe Gareth wasn't meant to be, like, the heart of the show. No. You know what, though? Tim, as we know, because he's told us and because we can see it in every fucking move he makes, he is so deeply unhappy with his job, and Gareth is not unhappy with his job. Gareth mm -hmm. is really the only person in that office who, like, loves that company and loves that branch. And he also thinks that David Brent is the incredible businessman slash comedian that David wants people to see him as. So Gareth is secure in his shit. His shit is weird, but yeah. Gareth is secure in it, and Tim who maybe if you were to, you know, photograph them and put them side by side or spend, you know, two and a half minutes with each of them, it's like Tim is the one who should be out there thriving. He's the one mm -hmm. who should be, you know, feeling secure in his shit and in the career that he wants to be because he's better looking and he can is carry he, though, on that's, the conversation with the average person. Okay, he's more <laughs> traditionally, you know, good looking. Fine. You know that I have strange tastes as well. I, I'm saying traditionally speaking. No, yeah, okay. I know. I know. I and of the two of them, Tim is probably, again, if you were to meet them in real life, he'd be considered the more alpha male, even though he's, he's short, but mm -hmm. he's the more like, quote, normal het dude but it's Gareth who's out there getting laid oh and God, doing yeah. really well in his career. And that must drive Tim crazy and just make it all the more, you know, seductive, the idea of cutting him down. And um, yeah. it is mean, but it's very complicated. I don't think that Tim is a mean person. I think I that think he's, he's really depressed. Oh, no, 100%. And that's <laughs> yeah. why I'm not going to write him off as like, Tim is a bad person or Gareth right. is a bad person or David is a bad person because he has all of these racist, sexist views. I mm -hmm. think that something that's so beautiful about this show is that everybody has good and bad, with the exception of Chris Finch, who's pretty much all bad. And yes. arguably Lee as well. Mm -hmm. Everybody has shades to their characters in different layers. And it's just watching humanity. And we all have parts of ourselves that are embarrassing or ugly or, you know, malicious. And we also all have, you know, great potential within us to do good things. It's not it's not black and white. The show is so not black and white. So let's get back to that fourth episode with the training that we mm -hmm. both started to talk about. There's this incredible, like, role-playing where David Brent gets to act out a customer and he's 
interacting with the manager, yes. trying to teach people, you know, how to be a good manager, how to handle situations. And But David is also just cannot be outdone in like an opportunity to perform. He's every bad improviser I've ever yeah. had the misfortune of sharing. He does not with. understand the point of the exercise is not to perform, but to Much get less through to this win. stupid fucking training. We should play that clip. Right, in this... Uh, scenario was that was something nice and easy. I'm going to play, and, and, and this will be the wrong way to do it. I'm going to play a very bad hotel manager who just doesn't care. So, and if it's a Basil Fawlty type character, then well, there, Tara, maybe I should do it just for the comedy. Yeah, well, let me just yeah. play just, you know, just to kick things off, okay? Uh, I'll probably bring so much to this role anyway, so. Right. Okay, Go well, on, you've got to complain. You yeah. come and complain, and I'll show you the, the wrong way to handle it. This will be the okay. wrong way. Okay. Right, so off we go. So, what's the complaint? Just, just make it up. Anything. Because there's no right or wrong thing in this scenario. Then we tell you the right thing afterwards, so okay. we might as right. well, well you, you, you get on with it. Yeah. Right. Okay. Okay. I'd like to make a complaint, please. <laughs> don't care. Well, um, I am staying in the hotel. I don't care. So it's not my shift. Well, you're an ambassador for the hotel. I don't care. I, I don't think care you'll care when you I tell think. you what the complaint <laughs> I is. I think there's been a rape up there. I got his attention. Get their attention. Okay? Mm. Right, so, well, some some interesting points. Very uh, interesting points. Flagged up there. It's not, yeah. not, uh, not quite the point I was trying to make. Different maybe. points to be made. Uh, I'm more okay. interested really in customer care. So am I. And the way that we would uh, deal phased, with somebody. I may, maybe I should, as I thought, I should play the hotel manager because I'm used to that. I phased you. But uh, you have a go. See if you can phase me. Okay? Uh, yeah, right. Okay. okay. Um, uh, hello, uh, I wish to make a complaint. Not interested. Uh, my room is an absolute disgrace. Don't care. The, the bathroom doesn't appear to have been cleaned. <laughs> what room are you in? 362. There is no 362 in this hotel. Sometimes the complaints will be false. But anyway, you can see throughout the episode that Dawn and her awful fiancé, Lee, have gotten in, in some kind of fight. You don't know what about. Again, very generic. You only kind of see them far away, down a hallway. Throughout it, you kind of wonder, did they break up? Because they do sort of march away from each other at one point, and Dawn's crying. And in front of everybody, Tim does ask Dawn out for a drink, but he says, um, I know you've split up with Lee. Would you like to come out for a drink with me? And Dawn says to him, I haven't split up with him. And this registers on Tim's face and he says, no, no, I know you haven't. I, I meant as a friend. And it's just that awful like, oh, you've put yourself out there. You've been courageous. You've dared greatly. Yes. And it did not go well. And you did it in front of everyone. And now you have to cover your ass. So that becomes a thing that people in the office refer to a mm -hmm. lot. Now everybody mm -hmm. knows and everybody loves bringing it up to him as that awkward time that oh, you yeah. asked out Don. And mm -hmm. he, he sticks to the line, I wasn't asking her out. It was just a friendly drink. It's terrible. It's so fucking terrible. Yeah. and But I do think that that is... That's why this episode is so emblematic to me of what the show is and why it's a good sampler for people who haven't seen it because that is the one moment of the real emotional pain. And like, if you can handle that, I think, then you can handle 
the other stuff that it throws yeah. away. No, that's completely true. And I do think that this is a moment where David is kind of a pal. We don't know his actual intention, but like the entire time he's been trying to suck away focus from the person who's actually leading this training mm -hmm. by getting out his guitar and singing mm -hmm. these humiliating songs about oh my God. going we, down the road. Can we play Free Love Freeway right now? Time out. Absolutely. Pretty girl on the hood of a Cadillac, yeah. Open down on Freeway 9. Take a look, get her engine started. Leave a purr and then I roll on by, by, by. Free love on the Free Love Freeway. The love is free and the freeway's long. I've got some hot love on the Hot Love Highway. Ain't going home because my baby's gone. She's dead. She's not dead. Time later, see a cowboy crying. Said, "Hey, buddy, what can I do?" He says, "I lived a good life about a, about a thousand women." I said, "Well, why the tears?" He says, "Cause none of them was you." What you? No, he's looking at a photograph right. of you. No, of his girlfriend. It, the video was Sorry. a show. Yes, yeah, no. he sounds a bit gay. At the moment. It's not gay. No. Free love on the free love freeway. Love is free and the freeway's long. I got some hot love on the hot love highway. Ain't going home cause my baby's gone, she's gone. Free love on the free love freeway. The love is free and the freeway's long. I got some hot love on the hot love highway. Going home cause my baby's gone, she's gone, yeah. My baby's gone, she's gone, yeah. Right, that's lunch. But once Tim and Dawn have their awkward interaction, there's a couple seconds silence, and then David picks up the guitar again. And we end the episode with him, you know, doing another humiliating song. <laughs> but it's kind of, in a way, it's like, all right, he's probably only doing that to bring the focus back to him, but he also, you know, chose a good moment to do that, I guess. Let's get everybody <laughs> to forget about the awful thing that just happened. And uh, back to the music, shall we? I kind of appreciated him in that moment. Yeah, I don't think that it was necessarily about Tim, but it's more like, you know, a, a broken clock is right twice a day. Sometimes his inappropriate <laughs> intentions uh, or yeah. are, are correct. So that's... Yeah, completely. And that also leads into this kind of storyline where Tim starts saying that he wants to go back to university and become a psychologist. Yes. I don't know. It, it just makes you think about the little little choices that we make and the little directions that our lives take. I mean, he ultimately doesn't do that, at least not on camera. But mm -hmm. it's like he had this one thing going for him in this job that he hates, which was his friendship with Dawn. And now he may have ruined that. And so now he's thinking, okay, well, I got to get real about getting out of here because... I've sabotaged the one thing that I have going for me. Then the next episode after that, in the season finale, we see oh, just just this heartbreak. This was maybe the first time watching the show that I did feel invested in in Tim and Don. So what's happened is that it is decided that either the Slough branch or the Swindon branch will be axed and incorporated into the other. And there will be redundancies, and then the other person will take over Jennifer's job. 
And mm-hmm. so it's between David and Neil, who we don't meet until the merger happens. Um, first of all, okay, so the board has voted five to two in favor of David. And why? That makes no sense. Why that makes no that sense. <laughs> like, I love, I love David, but he's not, I can't imagine... Neil does ultimately reveal himself to be a bit of a dick, but he's a competent dick and he's the type of dick that fits right in with corporate culture. So, so that was a real puzzle. But yeah, so, so he fails a medical exam and is not given the job. So then Neil is given the job, but David tries to pass it off as this noble thing that he's done in order to save everyone's jobs because he wants to be the hero that everybody adores. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there's this awkward party at the end and like, oh, it is exquisite torture. There's just this great scene with this really strong like school dance vibe of Tim sitting out and watching all these couples slow dance and just sitting out by himself and then Don eventually joins him at his table and again every little touch and look just means everything and I'm like oh my mm-hmm. god my heart catches yeah yeah she says so when are you leaving me and then he says well I'm not because David has offered to make him senior sales rep and it's just a tiny little promotion just a little carrot to keep him in there and uh you can see Dawn's heartbreak on her face when Tim says that he's not leaving to pursue his dream it's palpable like she looks up to Tim as someone who's proof that you know change is possible and you can still follow your dreams it's never too late and he gives her hope and then it's just so crushing when you know the symbol of her belief basically tells her that she was wrong to even dare to dream and oh that's just such a that moment just kills me it's so good oh yeah they're very similar Mm -hmm. in that respect like Dawn full on says, I hope they get rid of me because it might actually get my ass to do something. Mm-hmm. A career move and not another arbitrary job. Yes. So relatable. So oh, fucking painful. Oh my God. I think back on nearly my entire fucking life <laughs> as a working person and everything Ugh. was completely arbitrary until age 31. <laughs> like, yeah. I am just now, quote, getting my shit together. That's good. You're ahead of Tim. But that idea of, I hope they get rid of me because I might actually get my ass to do something. I mean, oh, fuck. Yeah. Come on. That and, can apply to so much. So we've, we've mentioned Chris Finch a few times, but we haven't really talked about him yet. So Chris mm-hmm, Finch mm-hmm. is someone who really puts David in perspective because you might think, oh, you know, David, he's, he's this like, sexist, bad boss or whatever. But then when you see Chris, who's just this irredeemable shithead, and specifically when you see the way that he interacts with David, David looks up to this man so much and he's so nasty to him it's not even playful banter he's just he he like fat shames him and he tells him he's stupid all the time you meet him when they are partners for a quiz night which happens to fall on tim's birthday it's just oh just such a painful episode all around but Mm -hmm. he's it just makes me think of like you know like schoolboys. like he's he's the one who's looking up to the the boy who's maybe a year older or something and that means a lot in that weird hierarchy but chris just has such contempt for david and he's also you know really horrible with women and says a lot of just really fucked up off-color things but again it makes david seem so sympathetic in comparison yeah chris finch you meet him and you just know that he's the person who if you're out somewhere and you hear oh so and so's coming and you go oh fuck that blows everything like Mm -hmm. that's chris finch that's chris finch he's gonna make everything about himself he's gonna make you very uncomfortable and he's going to you know push the evening into a direction in which you'd not want it to go that's that's him another more minor character that i love is Keith. Keith is <laughs> Keith, great. Keith the accountant. He's just the most 
laugh out loud funny character and bringing Keith up actually reminds me of something that I want to talk about while this show is incredibly naturalistic and mimics real life in the sense that not everything is an event they've brilliantly interspersed all of these really funny set pieces with just you know footage of people doing their boring jobs or copies piling up on a photocopier just just little things to like capture the tedium and monotony of office life it really gives you that sense that it's not just wacky hijinks all day long like it's right you're trapped here yeah one of the two creators said something like you know if drama is life without the boring bits we've left some of the boring bits in and that's something yes. that, that the American one definitely does not no, do. No, definitely not. But, you know, in it, it does make that seem more realistic and it makes it seem like, oh, this maybe could, except for like a few very outrageous moments, it, it seems like it could actually pass for something real. Mm -hmm. And yet, despite that, it's so impeccably structured. And I really love the periodicity on this show because there are certain little like landmarks that they'll hit every season at the same point. Did you notice that? For example, Chris Finch comes in in episode three it's like you've, okay. you've heard him being talked up for a long time and then he comes in in episode three and then also in episode three season one is tim's birthday season two is trudy's birthday she's one of the new swindon people uh, ah. so there's there's birthday parties and then also the main present in those birthday parties is somehow phallic tim receives a giant inflatable cock from dawn and lee and then the whole office gives trudy a dildo which, first of all, like, what the fuck kind of office gives their employee a dildo? But whatever. Right. Anything that goes. That looks kind of fun, <laughs> I will on. say. It's, yeah, it's weird. That's where, again, it sort of strains credulity of the whole, like, this could really happen thing. But there's just these little things. Or, like, the guy in the very first scene who's being hired, Alex, the forklift driver. And that's also Jeff from Peep Show. It's Jeff from Peep Show! <laughs> who actually, when I saw Peep Show, I was like, oh, it's, it's Alex from The Office. Um, he's, uh, <laughs> he's getting hired in the first episode and then fired in the last episode of season one. Also, Stephen Merchant's dad has a little cameo as the handyman who like comes in and stares at the camera in the finale oh, of each season. Dad. Yeah, isn't that cute? Oh, I love that. Yeah, yeah. It's such so a he, funny touch. Just it's a, such a great an little old yeah, handyman just, coming in and being confused. Yeah, he just enters and he stares at the camera for a couple seconds. But he does that in the finale of season one and the finale of season two, and like roughly the same amount of time into the Christmas special that wraps up the series. Oh um, my god. That's amazing. I mean, it's funny. I noticed those things happening, but I didn't notice that they were kind of happening cyclically because yeah, it's, it's, pretty cool. it's office culture. It's going to feel like Groundhog Day. There's going to be stuff 100%. happening that happened last month. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that that absolutely helps to contribute to that Groundhog Day feeling. That, that's a brilliant way of putting it, Stephanie. Because like, I, how many fucking fire drills have I been like, here we are again. Has it really been six months? Is my life really going by at this rapid pace? Holy fuck. I wanted to say about season two, mm -hmm. you're talking about things that repeat themselves. In season two, now that Tim has A, been promoted, and B, been sort of publicly turned down by Dawn mm -hmm. and is feeling very vulnerable and shitty, mm -hmm. he will not clown around with her in a friendly way like he used to and yeah. is sort of being a bit cold and suddenly being very serious about his job at her expense. Yeah. And it's... I don't like it. I get it. I so get it. I yeah. so get it. I'm not saying that I am it. incapable of it. 
Sorry, yeah. go ahead. He does go back on it, though, within the same episode. It's, he yeah, goes he back does and forth. go. He, he runs hot and cold. It's weird. He does. But what I wanted to say in a sitcom like Coupling, where there is more than one location, and I understand that they go to a bar a couple of times in, mm-hmm. in the office, but it's usually louder and it's not a place where they actually sit and hash things out in their mm-hmm. little boy girl groups. Right. Um, but in, in a more traditional sitcom, you would have Dawn come home to her friends or go to the bar with, you know, Susan and Sally afterward and and Not talk all about the way that Tim acted at work but because this is the office and it's a documentary about the office you see this confused vulnerable scared sad woman who is in an awkward situation with someone that she really likes but can't have and you see him being rude to her you see how the dynamic has changed and you see her at work having to muscle through it yes. and it's really incredible and accurate just her sad little face as she's doing her daily stuff and looking over at Tim and longing to make a connection with him and not knowing how to do it because they used to get each other through the day and Mm -hmm. that's like kind of temporarily interrupted and it's freaking her out yeah yeah but you don't hear her talking it out with people it's all in her face and it's so fucking painful and great oh yeah no you again you know exactly how every single person on this show is feeling at any given time and it's nice to hear them tell their thoughts to the camera but like you you really don't need them to have full-on rehashes of this is what i'm feeling this is what i'm feeling. like it it's so great like when a character lies or exaggerates or or like pumps themselves up um, oh, wait. Oh, one other example of periodicity that I wanted to mention that I forgot about, but that was what got me oh. onto the topic in the first place, is Keith's conversations in the break room with the Scotch egg. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> because in episode five of each season, you've got Keith having a really awkward kind of like sexually inappropriate. I mean, maybe I'll just play a clip of one or both of them, but he's talking to either Tim or Don and oh God, just what a fantastic character. I just, there's so little of him, but a little goes a long way and it's just perfect. What are you reading? A holiday brochure. Why is that then going on holiday? What, uh, possibly. Where uh, to? Uh, States. United States. Uh, yeah. Don't know if you've heard the gossip, but Tim's going out with Rachel. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd heard. Yeah, because yeah, uh, he used to fancy you, didn't he? Oh, did he? Uh, yeah, 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 he did, and now he's found someone better. A lot of crime in America. Right, well, I'll be careful. Word of advice. Keep your traveller's checks in a bum bag. Thanks, I'll I'll buy one. What, when you get there? Yep. Word of warning, then. Out there, they call them fanny packs. Because fanny means your arse over there. Not your minge. 
it's the visual that's everything. You have this kind yeah. of fat, sloppy guy speaking in a, you know, monotone manner, and then he makes a sort of sexual remark, gets quiet, and just picks up a scotch egg and bites right it's... into it to punctuate what he just said. Oh my god. It's, it's like, so where did good. the scotch egg come from? That's oh. incredible. You're just no. eating a scotch egg, talking about gross sex stuff. It's the perfect, it's the perfect prop. Mm-hmm. In fact, in the bloopers for the season one DVD after uh, it, it isn't actually anything that Keith says in the first one it's that Tim says just stayed at home and had a big wank and that's when Keith eats the scotch egg and just like looks a little bit <laughs> but Martin Freeman couldn't keep a straight face because he like saw in the peripheral vision when his hand was coming up and they had to do like 13 takes dude that was something I was thinking about as I was watching I was going how the hell did they ever film this everybody's face and just because also <laughs> it's not like punchline laugh track cut mm-hmm. there will be punchline everyone is silent for several seconds yeah and, and it's then the same shot because cut. it's a documentary crew <laughs> yes oh yes god, how so the good. fuck oh my god another moment of like how did they keep straight faces is david's dance when he does yes in episode charity Oh my god, this is this is too visual for us to include a clip, but oh, everyone just do yourselves a favor and look it up online. It's fucking genius. Yeah, oh. so dang good. Oh, I was going to say you mentioned Rachel. And I have I to say that Rachel is that rare obstacle for the romance between the two leads that we're supposed to be rooting for, whom I actually really really like. I really like Rachel too. She's wonderful. She's she's also really game for making fun of Gareth and in that way she replaces Dawn. She's really sassy when Gareth is acting sexually inappropriate with her and like she's just she's very smart and very fun and cool and I don't know, I just think that she's really great and that's why it's just so shitty that Tim treats her so badly and seems so he indifferent really does. to her. Yeah. It's... I mean, in college when I watched it, of course, Rachel arrived and I'm like no you're a bitch I hate you you're stealing the man from my girl and you gotta get out of here and I mean I'm looking at it now and I'm like well Dawn's engaged if if she wants things to be different she's gonna have to let Tim know I mean I think again it's the way that all of these characters they're not good or bad they're just real people the person that you know the love of your life is involved with isn't actually a bad person or a bitch She's just at odds with your purposes. But Rachel is a perfectly lovely character, and I love that they don't make her cartoonishly villainish in the same way that they kind of do with Lee or that they do in every rom-com ever in the history of the world. But it's great that Gareth thinks that he and Tim are, like, fighting for her affection, but really there's absolutely no No. contest. (laughs) And a line that I know you and I quoted the other day on our intimate Skype call um, is one of my favorite lines of the series because if it were Peep Show, it would be an inner monologue line that Mm -hmm. both of us could go, I've had that thought. (laughs) But Gareth catches Tim and Rachel kind of making out in the hallway, which I also found a little bit unrealistic. But again, it's called The Office, so everything has to happen in The Office. But Gareth is just beside himself. He cannot believe that Rachel could possibly choose Tim over him. And he says, makes me think there's something wrong with you for a start, but in my head, I'd still do you. So I'm confused. (laughs) And that is how I am with every stupid boy who ultimately disappoints me somehow. But it's like, in my head, I'd still do you. So I'm confused. Hey, man, at 16, in my head, I'd still do Gareth. So I was real confused. (laughs) 
Oh god. Oh, oh god. god. I have to ask as an adult, do you have a crush for this series? As an adult, do I have a crush for the series? Um, I know that back in the day it was definitely Tim, but now I watch Tim and it's like I don't know. I would probably totally have a crush on Tim if I worked in that office. Mm-hmm. I probably wouldn't have a crush on Gareth, but I know what my fuck Mary Kill is, if that's what your real question is. Go for it. Tell me. Okay, so are we doing the three main men I think so. or what are we doing? Yeah, that sounds good. Okay. I am going to marry Tim. Yes. I'm going to kill David. All right. I'm going to fuck Gareth. That's my answer too, but I'm surprised by you. I can't fuck David Brent. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. No, I feel that, um, yes, I could fuck Gareth. He gets that saucy phone call from a lady with a sexy voice who is asking him if he's going to come over that night and bring the toys. And I thought, (laughs) whoa. Okay, it could be the weirdest night of my life, but also possibly one of the best. Let's find out. Truly, yeah. I mean, it. just like it pains me so much to kill Basil Fawlty, it pains me to kill David because he's just my favorite fucking person. But yeah, I don't don't want to have sex with him. And Gareth, yeah, in addition to like having a teenage crush on him, he he frequently pulls ladies that are way out of his league. There's there's one point where he goes home with a couple. <laughs> that was so club. funny. So good. Yeah. This guy fucks. He I, I think that it could be a fun night. <laughs> okay, no. I'm I'm glad we're I'm glad we're in agreement about that. Yeah, no. That was that's pretty easy. Now, earlier, you know, we were talking about Neil, who is David's new boss, and we also talked about how he finds ways of disparaging his old boss who is a woman but I do Mm -hmm. feel that he goes out of his way to try to you know have this pissing contest with Neil probably Mm -hmm. because Neil's also a man and clearly the alpha male of of the two of them and you referred to Neil as a dick which I gotta say I hate when Neil has to tell David to reel it in but he's not wrong well, here's here. Okay, let's talk about Neil. Neil is an interesting character. So as we said, season one is sort of its own self-contained thing. Season two, the cast doubles because we've got all of these new Swindon people and Neil is the new boss. And mm-hmm. it's a real source of, of tension and irritation and sadness for David. And you're right. He, he isn't a dick until he is. It's not really until I think the Christmas episode that we really see the full extent of his of his dickery (laughs) but um, i think he still has a point i will i will argue i will argue with that so there's that one really heartbreaking moment when david invites the swindon people out for a drink at lunch to try to bond with them and or rather to you know make them like him rather than asking them about themselves which is just the easiest fucking life hack for getting someone to like you it's true fun tip listeners um instead it's awkward and so it doesn't go well and then he just abandons it he's like well if you guys aren't gonna make the effort i'm just gonna go and so he leaves them all there at this awkward pub and then he comes back and you know neil is like having a laugh with the other employees in the office and then he snaps at him and it's just so painful because he's so clearly just projecting his own fears and insecurities about himself onto neil he's like oh oh i'm the need of everyone to like me oh i'm the boss i'm so cool oh pathetic and it's just your heart breaks because you know that he's talking about himself but neil handles it very very well very professionally he's like okay i think we best call it there like when when you have when you have a whole bunch of witnesses to like being attacked in an unprovoked way it's very awkward and I've, I've been in that sort of situation before where it's like how do i handle this situation and keep all of our dignity intact he does that very well and then you know neil privately reprimands him in david's office and oh man like he he doesn't step out of line it's perfectly reasonable he handled that like a real pro 
but god ricky's face he's just such a good actor like he yeah it, he's like a little boy it's so fucking sad he is like a little boy not just when he gets sad but also when he talks back yeah. when he has an answer for everything but you think that neil's especially a dick on christmas because it's it's christmas like I said, he's he's a professional and he's just kind of an obstacle that doesn't, sort of like with Rachel, he doesn't really do anything wrong in season two to right. make you hate him. It's just like, well, if it's David versus Neil, then I'm going to side with David because I knew him and loved him first. But then mm -hmm. in the Christmas special, we see that Neil kind of starts to play back with the whole pissing contest. One of the first scenes is that he puts David on the spot about bringing a date to the Christmas party. He calls David's bluff about how, like, oh, you date a lot of women, so then I guess I'll put you down as a plus one for the Christmas party then. And he's like, yep. Mm -hmm. And so then he's backed into a corner. He has to go through a dating agency and, you know, hope that he can find a date in time for this party. You know, there's a ticking clock. It's very funny. There are just some little moments where he intentionally tries to humiliate him. And then where Neil, I think, shows his true colors. I'm not sure if he becomes a dick or if he was secretly a dick all along and he was just better at hiding mm -hmm. in front of the cameras. But mm -hmm. one of the most satisfying things in the Christmas special is like in the last 10 minutes when David has brought this really lovely woman, Carol, to the Christmas party after having like a series of, of bad blind dates where he's been not very well behaved and, and fat yeah. and, and terrible. It's like, how, how did you deserve such a happy ending with this lovely <laughs> woman? She's, she's beautiful and she's sweet and she's really sympathetic. She hasn't seen the documentary, which is key. Um, and she wants to see really... David again. Yeah. Yeah. She says that she would go out with him again. It's like a really sweet and satisfying, happy ending for him that you totally don't expect that, that he, right. you know, especially in front of all of his coworkers, like it's good that this is the date where he gets to show off this really lovely woman who who seems like a very genuine and kind person uh and so then she leaves and he's like coming back all happy and he starts to talk to chris finch and neil and then neil says oh did you not bring your dog with you today david because uh, he had brought his dog into the office and then chris says oh did you not see her she just left and then he and neil both laugh and mm -hmm. that's where i wrote down the note neil is billy bush Ooh. <laughs> fucking right yeah yeah that's true he's not as bad as chris finch but he is still he still supports that he's an enabler of it and he he doesn't he, he laughs at the expense of this this like perfectly lovely woman just to just to make david feel bad but then the i did not thing, notice that neil laughs oh, he definitely does i think that he's closer with chris finch than we are led to believe or to, to see in season two but yeah it's really thrown into relief in the christmas special that he is kind of not that great a dude but then the best part is that this is probably like the most cathartic moment of the entire series is that david just says chris why don't you fuck off and it's like yeah. the moment where he grows a spine and he finally is able to stand up to the mean bully that he's been idolizing for so long in defense of this of this lovely woman. Because there have been other times when he's kind of had the impulse to be like, oh, well, that's not right. But he's still just wanting to be liked by everybody. He he's is Billy unwilling well. and unable to stand up to other people. Like a great mm -hmm. example is in one of the first episodes when he's he's with jennifer taylor clark and they go down to the warehouse and the warehouse leader guy glenn is showing a video of his dog having sex with another guy's dog and then like he very explicitly sexually harasses and undermines jennifer and then she is like you know my office now or your office now she's very upset and leaves and then david says that was out of order in a way rather than firmly putting down his foot he's like yeah i know that that was wrong but he doesn't want to anger these you know intimidating men which i mean i i could understand it might not be a safe thing to do but also 
he doesn't really have the courage of his convictions when he's you know constantly trying to say like oh i i oppose racism and sexism like this is the first time that we actually see him stand up for himself and it's so satisfying it is so satisfying it Mm -hmm. is i did not notice that neil laughed along with chris finch's joke kind of fuck that but i mean neil's also neil has a history just like everybody else i mean he's in this situation and he's got this guy who just won't listen to him and do the job and David does eventually get offered a severance package at the end of season two. He actually is, you know, kind of proven to be an insubordinate, impossible person. And he's yeah. he's let go. And it is the worst. Oh, my God. It is the worst. But just like with Peep Show, you mm-hmm. know, you can see why it's happening. You have seen him be repeatedly discourteous to everybody, not listening to his boss. He has been given verbal warnings in like every damn episode. And it's finally like, well, what the fuck else am I going to do? And if I were Neil, I would probably do the same thing. So... It, but but it's heartbreaking to watch. It's terrible. I hate that scene very yeah. much. Yeah, I mean, I don't blame him for firing David. I understand. I think that that was the right choice for the organization. But it's yeah. the Christmas episode where he is explicitly trying to challenge David and to make him look foolish. And then when he laughs along with Chris's sexist joke, he I think yeah. he's just kind of a mean guy. And that's also probably coming from some insecurity that he may have. I don't know. We're, we're not really privy to the inner workings but of he's his psychology. But fucking sick of David because David just, it's revealed that David just keeps going to the office even though he doesn't work there anymore he just keeps going to the office with a dog and interrupting everything and you can't do that imagine being neil no no i know i know what the fuck else do i have to do no you're you're completely right you're completely right on paper but stephanie i will pose this question to you are you team neil or team david declare your loyalty now I don't have to. I think that yes, this you show do. Is I'm very, telling you, you do. This show is hugely ambiguous, which is part of what makes it so incredible. Team Neil like, or Team David, pick a side. Well, I mean, that's like choosing a side between you know Betty and Don Draper. Is it? <laughs> I mean, like just, I mean. Look, I could absolutely see why Betty's eventually like, I can't be married to you anymore, motherfucker. Get out of my house. But you know all about Don and his past and why he just can't be a perfect husband. I can't pick a side in that. I see both their sides. David and Neil aren't lovers. (laughs) But it's a relationship and it's complicated and there are two sides. Okay, Okay. I don't love David any less. In fact, I think I'm very protective of him, which is why I need him to stop showing up at that office and humiliating himself. Yeah. Oh, man. That that scene, though, where Neil and Jennifer fire David... It's so, it's so good. It's just, it it just epitomizes, there's just an image that completely captures everything that I love about this show and about British comedy in general, is that he's a broken man. He's had his job, which is everything to him, taken away from him. He's on the verge of tears. And then he stands up and, and it's revealed that he's wearing this ridiculous Bernie Clifton ostrich costume. And it's just so good. And then he has to go outside and, you know, pose for a humiliating photo with the other people in the office. And like, they're making him run around and like peck at this oversized novelty check and that image that juxtaposition of like a a sad broken man in a really really funny costume it just made me think of the finale of Blackadder where he's delivering this incredible like insightful account of World War One while wearing underpants on his head and two pencils stuck up his nose it's that same yeah like isn't isn't life absurd and sad like let's laugh and cry about it at the same time everybody oh god and they tell him we want to offer you a very generous redundancy package and he says, 
are you offering me or are you telling me I have to take it? Which is incredibly funny. Yeah. (laughs) But it's like, no, obviously you're being fired and they have phrased it very politely. But I love that. Just Mm -hmm. the denial in his face as, as he knows that all he has is, is being yanked away from him because he's fucked yeah. it up, if I may say. The season two finale, which I thought when I first saw it, and I think they thought when they were first making it, was going to be the end of the show. I mean, awful. That's just sadistic. My heart, oh my God. So there, there's so many moments in this that are so incredible. So much happens in this. There's this one quote from Tim that I think about all the time, and that's probably the most Tim thing about me, is the monologue about rolling the dice. He's talking to the camera and he says, I just think, well, if you look at life like rolling a dice, then my situation now as it stands, yeah, it may only be a three. If I jack that in now, go for something bigger and better, yep, I could easily roll a six. No problem, I could roll a six. I could also roll a one, okay? So I think sometimes just leave the dice alone. That just breaks my fucking heart every time. But then also we see Tim feeling really kind of lukewarm towards Rachel when she invites him to her family's cottage in the country or whatever. And then he breaks up with her at work. And it's so heartbreaking. And Dawn's thing about how a real relationship isn't like a fairy tale. And like, you know, I'm watching this in 2003 and I've got my eye on the clock. I'm like, okay, there's like 10 minutes left. There's five minutes left. Like, how are Tim and Dawn going to get together in such a short period of time? Come on, guys. Like, what's going to happen? And then, oh, Tim is doing that, that little... Uh, you know, you can't, you can't change circumstance. And then he says, like, sorry, and he just leaves. And I'm like, oh, my God, like, my fucking heart was pounding. Like, I was walking to my own execution. I was like, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. And then he takes her into a room, takes off his microphone. We don't hear what they say. We just, our hearts are frozen for the period of time that while they just, you know, she gives him a hug, goes back to the desk, and then he puts his mic back on and says, she said no, by the way. And that... (sighs) fucking destroyed me for a full day afterwards i don't know if you remember this stephanie but that premiered on a sunday night monday all day i was crying at school because of those six words i really like over invested in this show i, I do not re- <laughs> i'm actually going to read a little a little excerpt from my high school diary this is from november 28 2003 By the way, I forgot to mention how devastated I was by the season, series, finale of The Office. All my faith, if any, in love, humanity, and mundane magic was crushed by Tim's six monosyllabic words. She said no, by the way. I've since recovered a bit of sanity, and I think I could watch it again without crying. However, the entire Tim Don romance that never was message came across beautifully. Don't wait until the last minute. Tell people how you feel. And then fun follow-up. That actually inspired me to ask out the boy that I had had a crush on for three years to a school dance. And uh, he said no, by the way. So, yeah, that's. (laughs) Wait, 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 wait. I'm going to cry. Hold on. No, no, no. Kaylee. (laughs) I hate everything. Yeah, no, I know. But it's the most devastating finale. I'm so glad that they didn't end it there, even though I still recognize that it's kind of perfect. It's really good. And David's monologue at the end about life being a series of peaks and valleys. Oh, yeah. Maybe we'll play it. Life is just a series of peaks and troughs. And you don't know whether you're in a trough until you're climbing out or on a peak until you're coming down. And that's it. You know, you never know what's around the corner. Uh, but it's all good, you know. Um, yeah. If you want the rainbow, you've got to put up with the rain. Do you know which philosopher said that? Dolly Parton. Yeah. 
and people say she's just a big pair of tits. It's refreshing because, like I was saying, I mean, it's nothing we've never heard before. Yeah. Let's be honest about that. Life being a series of peaks and valleys, sometimes it's great, sometimes it's shit, but whatever. I mean, I, I guess it's all good. It, that's nothing that we have never heard before. And it is not poetic. It does not sound perfectly written for the screen. It's just a thing that somebody would say. Mm -hmm. And that makes it so powerful. Oh, yeah. So then, Kaylee, do you know why they then decided to give us a happy ending at the Christmas special after giving us a really fucked up ending and making us suffer for several years? In the materials that I watched, they didn't specify why they decided to do it. I'm just so fucking glad that they did. I, I think that, you know, okay. they, they wanted to give a more sort of satisfying wrap up to all the characters after leaving on a, a real bummer note. Um, gotcha, which, gotcha. which I think was wise. Like this show is the perfect length. Every single episode is good. I would say that the training episode that I mentioned earlier ties with the Christmas episodes as mm -hmm, my favorite. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's so good. Should we talk about the Christmas episode? Let's do it. It's supposed to be three years later. That's correct. Tim's still there. Gareth's still there. There's a new receptionist. Gareth's the boss now. Yeah, Gareth's got David's old job. Oh, which he takes very seriously. Mm -hmm. You hear Dawn talking in the previous season about how she and Lee are going to be taking like an extended holiday in the states mm -hmm. and so there's this great fake out when you mm -hmm. first see dawn because it's supposed to be like the bbc are doing a follow-up documentary mm -hmm. so dawn and lee are in florida and you see dawn and lee and they're outside lee's sunbathing dawn's very tan and she's holding a baby and she's still got her ring on mm -hmm. and she's being very loving and tender with the baby and you think oh no oh. <laughs> but it, it turns out that they're kind of just stuck there they've been there longer than the allotted 60 or 90 days or whatever mm -hmm. it is and um, they're just kind of chilling with a relative we learned that Don is very much babysitting that baby and that they are still not actually married and Don looks a bit happier but she's clearly still very much not running away to the U.S. has not turned out to be the fixer that perhaps it was supposed to be and um, there's going to be a Christmas party at the office and Don is invited and David's invited and we learn that David keeps showing up at the office and torturing Neil and vice versa, <laughs> I guess, to be fair. One of my favorite moments in this, which, again, I would urge people to watch, is David's music video. It is revealed that yes, he spent he... most of his severance package on releasing a single. <laughs> and he made a video. On releasing so a single, $42,000. Pounds. The song is If You Don't Know Me By Now, and it's beautiful, and everything about the video reminds me of a, like, a meatloaf video. Um, <laughs> it's just, it's just so fucking oh, good. God, it's so good. And he makes celebrity oh. guest appearances at pubs if there's ever, yes. like, a quiz night or a dating game show night. Yeah. He will make a celebrity appearance, but no one knows who the fuck he is. And he's got that clueless agent. <laughs> it's sort of like you can see the seeds of extras being planted in here. Yes. Oh, God. But yeah, it's a two-parter, and the second part is where the action actually takes place, because that's when we actually get the Christmas party and the reunions. Yeah. Before that, though, yes. we meet we meet Tim's new deskmate, Anne. So nothing much has really changed for Tim, except that he no longer has Gareth to annoy him and whom he can annoy back. Instead, he has Anne, and that seems to be sort of a one-way street. And I listened mm -hmm. to the commentary on this that Ricky and Steven did, and they said that they wanted to, because, you know, in the first two seasons, mostly you have the men as boys and the women as grown-ups, which is a common comedy trope. Uh, however, like, in an office setting, 
it's like pretty realistic and since they are mm-hmm. going for such realism in this it's great that you know they, they wanted to give uh tim a horrible character to annoy him who was a woman to give a, a woman a chance to to be awful and funny in that way um it actually well, kind of reminds me of what we were talking about with coupling and why would you replace jeff with oliver why not maybe a woman and in this case it's like if it was just a gareth clone like that's not fun but she's this obnoxious, self-involved oversharer who's like pregnant and always making these weird noises and just completely oblivious to, to anybody else's feelings. But unlike coupling, thank God, it's not just a matter of her showing up and being pregnant and that grossing Tim out. Yeah. Oh, because no, that's that true. could have been very different. Yeah, but it's, it's, it's definitely explicitly... oversharing when she reenacts the position <laughs> that she and her husband were in when oh, she yeah. believes she conceived her child. Uh, like that's a whole different animal. Yeah, yeah. So Anne's awfulness actually just highlights a moment that makes me love Tim so much. As I've said, you know, no one on the show is entirely good or entirely bad. And there are some times in this show where I really don't sympathize with Tim. But I think that Tim is definitely like one of the good guys because after David shows up at the office with his dog one too many times, Neil officially bans him from the office. And then he says, well, I can come back if I have a meeting, right? And he says, I don't know what you'd have a meeting for, but sure, of course. And so then he goes out and says, hey, I've been banned from the office because the regime don't like it, man. And who, so who wants to have a meeting with me? Silence. Who wants to have a drink with me? It's just really it's painful and awkward. No one's stepping up for him. And then Anne says, no one wants to have a meeting with you. No one wants to have a drink with you. Don't even work here. And then Tim steps up and says, yeah, I'll have a drink with you, David. Give us a call after work. And like, my fucking heart. Like, he's he's that guy who, like, he doesn't like hanging out with David, but he's the guy who takes one for the team because he recognizes a lonely soul and is willing to babysit that soul for the period of time that it takes i've been in that situation too where it's like well someone needs to do this i'm gonna do this this public service of you know not letting this person be completely alone and good on you tim yeah he wants to be able to go to the whole party so there's going to be a dinner followed Mm -hmm. by you know drinks and music and whatever in the Mm -hmm. actual office and it's broken to David that he can't come to the dinner. Gareth tells him it's actually just current staff only. Mm-hmm. And David takes this completely personally. And perhaps it was because Neil can't stand David. We know that. Mm-hmm. But David, it's it's so complicated. It's so many things happening mm-hmm. at once. Because on one hand, you feel so terrible for him. You want him to be able to go to that dinner. But when Gareth kindly says, you know, maybe he can have a, a word with Neil. David says, nothing you can do. You're just a puppet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And it's like, okay, A, he literally has your old job. (laughs) So perhaps there's some self-loathing happening right here. You are reflecting on what a puppet you used to be. I don't know. Mm -hmm. This is someone who sees that you're hurt and is trying to help you. And you fire back just with some cruelty. Mm -hmm. Like, I thought that was so realistic and so human. You're just a puppet. It's like, oh, God, fuck you, David. I want to hug you, David. That's 100% what this entire series is. But so then there's the party, which is like the last 20 or so minutes of the episode. And oh, it's so good. So much happens here. We already mentioned the fantastic fuck off Chris moment and David's really sweet, lovely, charming date. It, it's it's I'm I have conflicted feelings about that because on the one hand I'm so happy for him but I'm also so sad for her and for me and for all women you know yes yes <laughs> that's yeah it, it sort of relates to what you said about how like form an orderly cue ladies like they are because you're a man and that's what <laughs> this show does so much with so little like it's so it's so subtle and so minimalist in so many ways and one character that we haven't talked about yet is Sheila who's someone who's there from the beginning. Mm. 
she hardly has any dialogue but she's just always there in the office she seems like a really sweet mild-mannered woman and then there's this one scene in season two after oliver the the black guy from swindon joins the office and they're all in the break room together talking about like what you like in the opposite sex and someone turns and says how about you sheila and she just says i like blacks and you just see oliver look so uncomfortable because he's the only one in the office and she clearly has a crush on him and for the whole rest of their time together it's like you'll see her just like giving these little looks of like oh like he's sitting next to her or whatever and then there's this lovely little montage in just three shots at the party where you see Sheila go up to Oliver like wearing like a little tinsel crown and she's got her drink and she looks all happy and she's gonna talk to him and then a couple shots later you see Oliver making out with Trudy while Sheila looks on and is so sad and then later you see her crying to Emma and it's just the sweetest little tiny like beginning middle end perfect little story you don't need to have her talking about it you don't need to have any sort of confession about it it's just like a nice little they do so much with so little and it's so it's so painful i know it's so relatable i know and it's you know again it's great that we all have to see these people have these human emotions stuck inside this very like non-organic environment mm-hmm. of a fucking office and i understand that you know when she's crying i mean it is at a party it's a little bit different but again just like we were talking about with dawn having the reaction of trying to process that her friendship with tim has changed and she's got to process it and deal with it while she's stuck at work mm-hmm. there's something very specific about that because it's interesting to watch anybody in movies or film process emotions but when they're trying to hide it it's mm-hmm. it's heightened in a way that's um a lot more interesting than just when someone gets to have a full-on Meryl Streep monologue moment where there are tears and proclamations and and this and that. It's just more interesting. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. There's another moment when Tim and Don are making fun of Gareth, like making him sound gay for old time's sake together. And Lee comes in and spoils their fun and punctures that tradition that's been going back for years, probably before the series even started. And that is Mm -hmm. what I would describe as another world-breaking moment in the same vein as like in Blackadder when George says, I'm scared, sir. It's like, oh God, everything that I knew has just been broken and the rugs pulled out from under me. And you know nothing will ever be the same after that it's just so it's just so sad and then you know and then Gareth says well that's pathetic and it's like he's not he's not wrong it's it is it is kind of sad that the only thing that's been keeping you going for so long is making fun of this weird guy but oh to that point that you just made we should definitely play Tim's monologue as well the people you work with are people you were just thrown together with you you don't know them it wasn't your choice and yet you spend more time with them than you do your friends or your family. But probably all you've got in common is the fact that you walk around on the same bit of carpet for eight hours a day. And so, obviously, when someone comes in who you you have a connection with, yeah, and Dawn was a ray of sunshine in my life, and it meant a lot. But... If I'm really being honest, I never really thought it would have a happy ending. Oh my god, I think about that fucking daily. It's so sad. I mean, I feel I feel really grateful that my parents moved across the country to be closer to me and my sister. But before that, like, you know, I would see my dad like maybe six days a year. And, oh you know, god. Stephanie, same thing with you. Like, with the exception of our London trip last year, we spent like six to twelve hours in each other's company face to face 
per year. And it's like, oh, there's so many people that I'm around all the time who don't even know my name and vice versa. But do you ever have a fucking, um, what's the goddamn play called by Thornton Wilder about the dead girl and then- R-Town. Do you ever have an R-Town moment where you kind of look around your office and you go, I could make a better effort to get to know these people because we're all stuck here and we're all going to die. Oh, I think Do you ever have it, that? I'm not going to do it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I mean, sometimes I try to do it. I don't know. All my friends got fired. Oh, I know. <laughs> I also, as much as I identify with Tim, I don't even have a dawn to like tragically pine over. Um, yeah, I don't know. Life's, well. pretty, life's pretty bleak. But like amazingly, as much as I've watched this show in the last few years while at my office and been made to feel really, really sad about it. This time it was like, oh, like I had a, I had a pretty rough week at the office at my own job this week. And I was like, oh, man, I can't wait to leave the office and go home and watch The Office in my home. And, like, that's my escapism now. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> I know that sounds really sad, but don't pity me. I had a fucking great week. Okay, good. Uh, yeah, no, it's, good, it's just the, the show just inspires so much delight. Like, the, the good and the bad, the painful and the joyful. It's all It's all just wonderful. Okay, so then there's been a, you know, seeds planted that there's going to be a secret Santa. Lee makes Dawn leave the party early, and Tim and Dawn have this really, like, charged, awkward, sweet goodbye, and it's like, no! Oh, God! Like, I I have to say, I really did not expect a happy ending from this, because, like, I learned from the season two finale. I was like, these guys, I'm not, I won't be hurt again by you people! But, um, she goes to the cab and opens up her present, and it's a set of oil paint and the card that she'd done a little doodle of Tim's face on. It says, never give up. She's crying. I'm crying. Everyone in the world is watching is crying. And then, like, oh my god, when she comes back, oh my god, like, <laughs> have you seen Toy Story 3 yet? No. Dude, watch Toy Story 3. Um, I just want to say that when Dawn leaves the party, it's like the climax no. of Toy Story 3. And then when she comes back, it's like a few seconds later in Toy Story 3. People who've seen it know what I'm talking about. Where it's like, oh god, there's no way out of this sad ending. And then, oh my god, the impossible happens and your hope and optimism is restored. And you feel like a child again. It's amazing. How have you not seen Toy Story 3? It's so good. Because I'm an adult. You're an adult. Oh, oh, I'm an adult. I can't watch a movie that's... No, because the truth is, I never bonded with Toy Story. Even the very first one that came out, I thought the animation was weird and I didn't think the movie was very funny. And I feel absolutely nothing for any of those fucking you toys. Will That's why. Watch Toy Story. No, I never cared. I don't care about Toy Story I 1 either, but the, when I'm telling you, okay, like you know how you know how High School Musical 3 is miles better than High School Musical 1? Well, yeah. It's that, but with feelings and not dance numbers. But I also, I mean, I'm also not that sentimental about like every single toy I've ever had. You the will the be. toys, the toys that I <laughs> Okay, now I'm just thinking of Yoda saying you will be you will be. But no, I mean, the, the two toys that I care about most in the world are actually in a purse hanging off of my chair right now. They're with me. I'm not getting rid of them ever. They've been to college with me. They are my two teddy bears, Fuzzy and Rhapsody. And I I put them away if there's ever going to be a man in my bed, which whatever, may as well throw the teddy bears back on my bed. 
There you go. Be free, guys. Be free. <laughs> oh, I'm sad that our listeners can't witness the incredible visual that I just saw. <laughs> I did just throw the teddy bears back on the bed That's where great. they where they fucking belong. Uh, no, okay. but but when when you see Dawn coming oh back into the party, and by the way, like they don't. They give us a happy ending, but they don't give us a Hollywood ending. She's mm-hmm. not running all, you know, full of a newfound joie de vivre. You know, mm-hmm. she looks upset. She just broke up with her fiancé in a cab, mm-hmm. half drunk. Like, mm-hmm. she is not having a great night. She's yeah. back where, we, where she's supposed to be mm-hmm. in order to pursue the person that she's supposed yeah. to be with. But she does not look restored or like she's all that confident she just walks up to tim and like taps him on the shoulder and um you 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 take it away from here because i forget which character says watch it she has a fiance that's gareth yeah that's gareth obviously (laughs) the way that you know she just kind of calmly says not anymore and then kisses tim and tim and again tim's not like oh yeah i'm right here to meet you half fucking way tim is confused as hell i mean he's ecstatic but he's also just like uh what uh what's what's happening it's just so it's just so real the way that their entire relationship from the beginning was real like th- this their coming together at the end is not like a big passionate thing it's just it's charming and subtle and awkward and vulnerable and tender and believable and oh my god and just even just that shot where you see her just as like this little black dot in the background long before tim or anybody else is and you're like wait what no oh my god is they are they really gonna give me the happy ending that i've been wanting for a year oh my god so i remember when i watched this for the first time as i said it aired in america during my first semester of college and this is an excerpt from my college diary (laughs) it says Okay. All caps. The new page. Office new page. Special new page. Lots of exclamation points. Was fucking phenomenal. New page. I literally screamed, clapped, and jumped in the last five minutes. It filled me with the most ineffable joy, and now I feel like I can't breathe because I had no one to share it with. I was by myself in darkened downstairs commons at freaking 2.30 in the morning, and it still evoked one of the strongest fictional TV-related emotional responses in all of Kaylee history. Good God, I can't stop thinking about Tim and Dawn. Life is so beautiful, I want to cry. <laughs> Oh, Kaylee. This See? I, I told you this means a fucking lot to me. <laughs> I am so happy that oh my god, that is so funny. After the season two finale, you're like, I have no faith in love or humanity anymore. And then after this, you say life is so beautiful. I just had to wait a year for Ricky Gervais and Steven Merchant to give me the emotional release that I that I craved, and now I'm fine. Fucking men taking their slow ass time giving you the release that you need. No, I it's better if you have to wait for it. It's so wonderful. Never never give up. The little card that says never give up. There's so much happening in that little card. It's not just about her artistic career. It's also about them getting together. It's also about him trying to better himself. About all of these people. Yeah. Just n- never give up. And it's just so simple. And, you know, something else about this special that really kind of messes with me, but I think it's supposed to. It's at the end, they're posing for their pictures and everybody's happy. And, you know, David had a wonderful date and told off Chris Finch and Tim and Don are together. And Lee's gotten the fuck out of there and everybody's had a a really wonderful time. The party's actually gone pretty well considering Mm -hmm. where they are. Um, But David Brent has this line where he says that he wants to be remembered as a man who put a smile on the face of everyone he met. Mm Mm-hmm. Not exactly who he is, though, is it? The way that we have seen him 
move about in the world, the cruelty with which he has treated his blind dates that he did not find attractive enough definitely didn't put a smile on their faces. Mm-hmm. He's put a smile on our faces That's, eventually, yeah. but not with his every move and every word. And it's just one of those wonderful moments where you're like, I want that for you so bad. You are absolutely not putting the effort in to make that come true for yourself. But I have a bit of hope that you will never give up. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's also, again, that's one of those little monologues in the lines before the one that you just quoted, where he does touch on some profundity that he doesn't usually, he usually, you know, misses the mark by quite a bit. But he says, you know... What what is it like, the thing about what you need in order to live a meaningful life is something something and to make a difference and it was that last one that always stressed me out the making a difference and then I realized that I do we all do it's how we interact with our fellow man and that's such a beautiful sentiment because I also am like oh I want to do great things and be successful in my chosen field and make a difference and change the world but like not everybody gets to do it on the massive scale that you know a Ricky Gervais does so sometimes we have to settle for doing it on the scale that a David Brent can and just be kind to those that we know and uh yeah and do do the work that we can to the best of our ability well that's when I mean we've we've talked about religion Mm -hmm. you are a self-proclaimed atheist I am a self-proclaimed agnostic but I think that when I think about God, and this might be getting a little bit too heavy, but I don't know. For it. It's the season finale. This is the time to get heavy. Go on. When Yeah, when I think about God, sometimes I try on the God is love thing, and then I go, okay, but, but why? And I just think about human interaction and, and connection. And it's like that great line that Kristen Scott Thomas has in season two of Fleabag, which, mm-hmm. holy shit, when she says, people are all we have. Mm. That's such a hopeful sentence. It's also such a crushing sentence because, yeah. you know, people like Coldplay and voted for the Nazis. You can't trust people, Jeremy, <laughs> to quote Superhands. <laughs> like, people will let you down. People will humiliate you. People will call you fat and unattractive. People will make you uncomfortable. People will force you to, you know, remain in a very small room doing menial tasks in order to make enough money to wake up the next day and do it all over again. Like, yeah. there's, there's so much about our human existence in and outside the office that is just so fucking intolerable and meaningless and monotonous. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if you are a believer in a higher power, good for you. I try to believe in the David Brent ideal of making a difference and thinking at the end of the day, whether I like it or not, we all are connected. And if I can show up and make someone feel not shitty-er about what they're already stuck doing in life, then Mm. that's fantastic, and that is a good way to try to worship your fellow man. I love that. That was beautiful. Um, That seems like a good note to wrap up on, but I did want to talk about American Equivalence because this is the first show that we've talked about that has a wildly successful American adaptation, and we haven't talked about it too much. I don't feel that I'm a good authority to talk about it too much because I've only seen a few episodes here and there. But All right. my mom explicitly told me earlier this week, she said, don't be too mean about the American version. <laughs> and like, well, I'm not going to be. It's not a bad show. It's fine. I just think that the original is a masterpiece and the remake is a perfectly competent sitcom. It's not the same thing. What made the first one so revolutionary was that it was a completely different style of comedy that felt really uncomfortably real and could pass for real life. And then... 
the American one is just like it, it ups the wacky factor and mm-hmm. it makes everybody I mean it, you know it, it's fine but you know obviously the world is big enough for both of them and people like the one that they like and that's fine I do remember when my I first found out that there was going to be an American adaptation my mom I think that there were people over at my house and my mom came downstairs and handed me a copy of the Entertainment Weekly and pointed to a little corner thing where it said the news, and then I threw the magazine across the room in disgust. <laughs> a dramatic display of my loyalty to the original. You know, I've since I've since come around on it. Like, it's never going to be my cup of tea, but I think that, you know, it doesn't, its existence doesn't ruin the first one. The first one still speaks for itself. Uh, the only thing that it does ruin is, like, my Google search results. I just have to scroll further down the page in order to find the thing that I'm looking for. But um, That's fair enough. if I say, oh, my favorite show is The Office, like, I'm afraid that people will judge me unless I quickly say the British version. But I'm also afraid that if I say the British version too quickly, then that makes me sound like a snobby asshole, uh, which I am. But I don't want other people to know that. <laughs> fair enough, man. Fair enough. I mean, I've watched significantly more of it than you have. There was a phase where I was pretty into it. I was mm-hmm. watching it in college. And I don't have anything against it. Season one is pretty terrible because they are trying to essentially just redo what they did with the British office, but Mm -hmm. something's just kind of missing in translation. And um, I'm sure the French and Chilean and Israeli versions suffer for the same reason. (laughs) Um, Indeed. I do think it's good, but it is a completely different animal. And I can see why diehard fans of the UK office would not have any interest in it. But I am here, Sherry, to very much not dump on the the US version of the office. But, you know, for as much as I do love Steve Carell as Michael Scott, the moments where you want to hug him and punch him at the same time are really just not there. Mm -hmm. You kind of either want to tell him to shut up or you want to hug him. You rarely get to kind of feel both. And that is something that I do have to give the UK office credit for, is that the emotions that you feel, your reaction to things are just so much murkier. And Mm -hmm. I can see why people would be uncomfortable with that. And I do know a British person who prefers the US version of the office. They out there. He can't be the only person. Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm I'm saying they out there. No, that's true. So if they're going to be the... If they're going to be the ultimate authority... Well, they're not going to be the... I mean, I'm assuming that this person lives in the U.S. Yeah. So if this person abandoned their homeland to come to our objectively inferior country, then obviously they're not going to feel any loyalty to their culture. Um, I mean, that's a that's one perspective. <laughs> well, I'm just saying, like, if I, as an Anglophile, were to move to the UK, obviously I prefer their version. I'm not going to be, like, repping the American... Uh, whatever. No, obviously it's a matter of taste, and that's totally fine, whichever one you prefer. There may even be people who really, really like both. But as far as the, the question that we always ask, like, could an American version of this work? Obviously the answer is yes, but I think it's, that yes, it works yeah. when they sacrifice the elements that made the original so special. And actually, if we... I have an idea for what is the American equivalent in terms of if you like this, you will like this show because they are similar in tone. And it's The Comeback with Lisa Kudrow, Mm, which is an HBO show that also ran for two pretty short seasons. The first one in 2005, the second one in, I believe, 2013. So very British structure already. But it's the only other thing that I can think of that is a very believable mockumentary. You know, other other ones, like I said, there's the, the Chris Guest stuff, and then there's the Parks and Rec and American Office stuff, and like what we do in the shadows. Obviously, none of these are going to be mistaken for real life. But the comeback is uh, Lisa Kudrow as a washed up sitcom actress who gets a role in a new sitcom. And she is so much much to me like David Brent's American cousin because 
you recognize her doing these things that are really uncomfortable and she also just has so much neediness and wants so badly to be liked and is always performing for the camera. You rarely get to see her be real but also every little emotion flickers so beautifully on her face. She's such a good actor just like Ricky Gervais is such a good actor. She's so wonderful and it is as painful as often as it is funny maybe even yeah. more often. So mm -hmm. yeah, I think that if you're looking for an American equivalent that will make you feel really bad in a good way, I'm going to I'm going to recommend the comeback on HBO. Yeah, I would I would second that for sure because they do leave room for the ambiguity and the discomfort and feeling many things at once for a person who you wish mm -hmm. would sit the fuck down so you can take them by the hand. Mhm. Mm um, dude, is that fucking it for season three of Anglo-fucking-philia? Wait, there was one more thing that I wanted to say. So I mentioned that I watched, or at least skimmed through the pilots of most of the foreign language ones. I watched the French one, Le Bureau, and uh, the only difference- What? Oh god, Le Bureau! Yes, Le Bureau. <laughs> the only difference, I mean, apart from the fact that everyone is, like, way hot. It's, like, dumb how hot <laughs> Dawn is, but whatever. Um... Not, not that I'm saying that the English cast isn't attractive as well, but like, you know, they, they look like real people and that's something that's so refreshing about something that's supposed to be real life. But so the only difference that they made is that instead of the Tim character putting the Gareth character's stapler in gelatin, he puts cheese in his desk. <laughs> that made me laugh out loud. I was like, can you get more fucking French than that? Because they're I... not going to ever fucking make jello. They're Oh my God. That is fantastic. Yeah. That is so great. Franco. Wait, which other ones did you, which other ones did you watch? I skimmed through the French Canadian one, the German one, the, I saw some clips of the Israeli one. I mean, I didn't, they didn't all have subtitles, but what's so crazy is that most of the pilots pretty much exactly look like you can tell exactly what the beat is it's the same like oh the david character pretends to fire the dawn character for stealing and the tim character puts the gareth's character in some local cuisine and uh, it's pretty great oh wow dude is that season three for anglo fucking philia oh my god i think it just might be that's awful oh uh, i know what are we gonna do next we're gonna take a long break and then we'll see a long break <laughs> yeah no. we're gonna you know what let's let's pretend that we're the office this is the end of anglophilia forever but then we'll come back with a great christmas special that'll make all of your dreams come true okay sounds good okay going home because my baby's gone she's dead she's not dead <laughs> <laughs> can we end it that way <laughs> that's great <laughs>